Stories Behind the White Coat. This is Grayscale. I'm Ben Davis. Welcome to the final episode of Season 2 of Grayscale. We're going to take a bit of a break, but we'll be back in a few short months with new episodes. Today, we have a very special episode. We have our first tag team of Laura Blinkhorn, who's a former resident at Swedish First Hill Family Medicine Residency, in addition to a geriatric fellowship at her program, and Joe Bruner, who, if you remember, in season one shared a story with us. So I'm going to sit back and relax and let them take over the show. See you at the end. And as always, certain names and details are changed to protect the identities of our patients. So I wanted to talk about a patient that we can call Anna tonight, and she was a legendary uh, residency patient. She was an immigrant, was a brilliant student, studied at a Ivy League university, married an American and had a child when she was young, and then had some sort of psychotic break was hospitalized for a long time before or during that period she wrote a, a novel and had an academic career and then she went on to have a much different life from how it had started because she was struggling with profound mental illness before i had met her i had heard about her she was a colorful character at our clinic and notoriously disruptive maybe joe you can tell us about the kinds of things that she would do yeah laura and i worked together at a clinic uh, uh downtown that takes care of underserved and mentally ill patients and even amongst those patients uh, anna stood out we had a resident precepting room where the faculty would sit and have wait for residents to come tell us about their patients. And Anna uh, was taken care of by two residents before Laura came and trained with us. And in the middle of her John Stevens tenure, uh, when she was especially excitable, she would come into the room and announce to the precepting room, she would say, where is Dr. Stevens? And tell him to put on his doctor dress. Because she really liked it that he wore his big, long, white medical coat, which felt to her more like she was getting the good care that she deserved. And of course, that's endearing, but also means that everyone breathes a big sigh of relief when, when the visit ends and when she's headed out the door. I think the whole clinic knew her. She came to the clinic all the time. And so the front desk staff knew her and the nurses knew her and she had this presence. She was um, short and, and disheveled and she would always come in with a huge Starbucks <clears throat> cup of coffee and would empty, you know, five or six little packets of sugar in. And she would just come in and demand to be seen immediately. And if I was in a room with another patient, when she arrived, she would go into the other room and 
when I left the room to precept or to get something, she would follow me. Once I went into the bathroom and she was waiting outside the door when I came out and her, her persistence was really um, endearing and kind of funny. But in retrospect, I think part of it was that she was so anxious and she didn't want to be alone and she didn't want to be forgotten. But I developed this thing where she would come to see me probably every one to two weeks. She declined all cancer screenings. She never wanted to talk about her smoking. She didn't really take medications for her high blood pressure. She had gone through a number of psychiatrists and we had a psychiatric nurse practitioner for a period. And it seemed that she had tried almost every medication and really had either not taken it or had not had any effect from the medicine. So by the time I met her, she was, I wouldn't say actively psychotic, but she was disorganized and had very inappropriate behaviors and wasn't really getting the mental health care that I felt that she needed. And I also felt that she was much too complicated for a resident to manage by myself. So this started a long um, and very difficult journey of trying to get a psychiatrist to see her and to help with her care. And I realized that Jero psychiatrists are like unicorns in Seattle and I think in other parts of the country, so it's nearly impossible to find them. And I found myself cold calling them, accosting them outside of conferences to try to get them to see her. And there always seemed to be a a reason like, no, they weren't taking that insurance or they weren't seeing new patients or they were only seeing patients that were referred through this uh primary care group, or she was in the wrong um, county to access these services. Um, So it was very challenging and frustrating to try to get help in um, seeing her. And I became convinced after talking to some psychiatrists on the phone and one of our consulting psychiatrists said that she could potentially be helped by electroconvulsive therapy. And her diagnosis was schizoaffective versus um, bipolar. And she had tried many medications and was obviously suffering, but never clearly a danger to herself. So it seemed like that would be potentially a good option for her if we could find it. And importantly, it was something that she would consider even though she had declined to engage with a lot of medical interventions or treatments. So to make a long story short, she eventually was able to see a psychiatrist who immediately admitted her to the hospital after seeing her and started, and she started electroconvulsive therapy. And I followed her chart, um, you know, from afar. And she the the hospital notes were describing much of the same behavior that we had seen. So she was going into other patients' rooms, eating off of other patients' trays, um, very disruptive during group 
work, but they said that they were noticing improvement. And so she was there, I think, for a few weeks. And then they decided to stop the treatments because of a cognitive score. Um, you know, not to get into the details, it cognitive impairment is not an absolute contraindication to electroconvulsive therapy, but obviously electroconvulsive therapy can have an effect on one's memory. Um, and so that was the reason they gave for stopping her treatment, though I had also done a cognitive test for her and she had received sort of the same score. Um, and so they discharged her from the hospital without an outpatient plan, um, including without offering her outpatient ECT or medication management. And the first visit after her hospitalization, she came in and it, she was completely transformed. She was well-dressed and she was appropriate and she smiled and she seemed calm. And I realized how her behavior that I had seen was so much a manifestation of her distress. So it was really wonderful to see her doing so well, but you know, that improvement eroded over the past, over the next month or so. One thing that I've wondered has been if it was actually the electroconvulsive therapy or whether it was living in an inpatient environment where she had all of her meals provided for her and she had structure and activities and people who obviously cared for her because I think her life was um, quite solitary and lonely. So I'm not sure what was more helpful, um, but neither was an option for her after her discharge. So the, the end to this story is sad too. So maybe two months after she had been discharged, she came in uh, to Kipnik one day to clinic, obviously, um, breathing fast, and she had no breath sounds on the right side. And this was a pretty acute onset, and then we couldn't figure out what had precipitated it. And so we direct admitted her to the hospital, and she had a massive right pleural effusion, and it turned out that she had metastatic cancer. And so we, um, I sort of was involved in her hospitalization. She was actually so sick and uncomfortable that she behaved. Um, she was sort of meek in the hospital, which was so unlike her. And I was there with her when she was told that it was a terminal diagnosis. And yeah, she ended up um, getting discharged to a skilled nursing facility and dying um, shortly thereafter from her cancer. One thing I didn't mention is that she did have an adult child. um, And her daughter was not very involved with her care. 
She had an adult daughter who was sort of peripherally involved in her care. And one of the patterns of her behavior whenever she came to our clinic was she would ask to use our clinic phone and she would call her daughter, you know, up to 15 times. And I suspect that her daughter needed distance from her. And she found out that if she called her daughter from the clinic phone, that her daughter would actually pick up the phone. And I found it challenging when I was trying to advocate for her to get psychiatric care and inpatient care. And when I was wondering if she was safe to be at home, that the daughter was seemingly so detached. And in retrospect, I imagine that she had grown up with a very difficult and profoundly mentally ill mother. And so her self-defense mechanism was to have to create some sort of distance. And I understand that. I mean, she called her literally 20 times in my presence. Um, And the daughter eventually called back and said she was in a work meeting. I never debriefed with the daughter afterwards. I sent her a note. Um, But I wonder how she viewed the hospitalization and the the end of her mom's life and what she made of this strange codependent relationship that she had with a doctor that she went to see twice a week, but, or every two weeks, but, you know, never actually got any prescriptions or, you know, screening or anything. Um, so I, that's something I wonder about. Our patients cope with their mental illness by, pushing it away and just pushing it down and coping as well as they can and pretending it's not there. And it's a legitimate way to handle the the terror within. But sometimes with your patient, Anna, it would extend to refusing to talk about symptoms that were germane or refusing to engage in discussions because she's had lots of mental health treatment in her life and she knows what's going to happen and she doesn't want it to happen because it means talking about it. It means bringing it into the room and engaging with it and having it be part of what's happening. And she did a lot of things in her life kind of just by pushing it down. Right. And so there's no arguing with that, even in the face of treatments that might've helped her she was the sort of person where it was hard to tell when you would decide on a treatment plan with some medicines and she'd come back and tell you about side effects. It was really even hard to tell if she'd really taken the medicines because of just how much fire she felt in each day and with each intentional action of hers. It's, it's hard to know. The other thing that's hard for me in Anna's story is that the same difficulty that our patient Anna presents to us when we see her and we contend with it and we push through it and we know it's the right thing to take care of her makes us suspicious of our specialist colleagues when they don't take care of her because of course she's a difficult patient. Of course she's challenging. Of course she's disruptive. And we want them to push through with the same intentionality that we bring to her care and There are, of course, valid medical reasons why they don't, but it just feels so 
badly and it's hard it's hard to get them to contend with her in the way that we would like her to be cared for because you see her enough times and over enough time where you develop real affection for her and have real interest in her well-being and it's it's just challenging to to have the system fail her in the way that it did i think sometimes about the role of humor in this like she you know i i actually found a lot of the things that she did to be really funny like you know i was pregnant i was obviously pregnant at some point and she said to me why are you pregnant which i just thought was so like bewildering and hilarious and like how do you respond to that and you know i thought it was really funny that she would just charge into other people's rooms and she was so disinhibited in a way and 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 then i wonder like why did i think that was funny i mean it was actually she was scared and she it wasn't a good thing for her that she behaved that way that was not helpful it alienated her it wasn't really i'm sure funny for her daughter that she got 20 calls in the space of you know however long and you know obviously we need to use humor as a defense mechanism and i don't know how else you could approach a patient who follows you to the bathroom and you know does these kinds of things humor seemed like the best way to th- to think about her but you know, maybe that was wrong, you know, maybe. And I don't think I didn't take her seriously. Like, I, I, I really did try to get her care. I, I think I didn't, it wasn't that I didn't take her seriously, but there was something I found kind of funny and endearing about how she thumbed her nose at all our conventions, even if that was her expression of her deep pain. So I don't, I don't know about that. What do you think about <laughs> laughing yeah. with patients? Um, I mean, it is what it is. It's, it's funny in the moment, even when I know it's painful because of the distress it represents. And I think you do her a kindness by playing along a little bit. She, she trusted you in a way that helped her, you were talking in the car about when she received her cancer diagnosis. you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, she, she was hospitalized, and as I said, it was, it was a very rapid progression. I'm pretty, you know, after, after she got the diagnosis, I spent, you know, a lot of time going through the chart, worrying if there had been warning signs that I had missed while we you know, chatted or whatever we did for those, you know, 15 minute visits every two weeks. Um, and I don't really know she declined physical exams and everything else. I don't really know that there was a way I could have identified an early sign of the cancer. And then when it happened, it happened so rapidly. She had these pleural effusions and other side effects from the metastatic cancer that 
made her very scared and physically uncomfortable. But I was with her in the room when she was told by the oncologist that that this was metastatic cancer and that there weren't very many good treatment options. And she, it was me and then the oncologist and her, her daughter. And she held my hand and, you know, I don't know what kinds of thoughts the daughter had about that. Um, but I felt like she was very vulnerable and appreciated a familiar face, even if, you know, I think she was laughing. Just to go back to the laughing, she was laughing at me too, I'm sure. <laughs> she must have thought I was ridiculous. Like I went came at her every every time with, you know, do you want to quit smoking? I mean, she knew. And, you know, do I, does she want a mammogram? I mean, she thought I was absurd. Just, I mean, the, the laughing definitely went two ways, but I think she was pleased to have, you know, this buffoon doctor in the room with her when she got that diagnosis. Grayscale is produced by Ben Davis. Special thank you to Laura Blankhorn and Joe Bruner for joining me today on the podcast. If you have any questions, feel free to email us at thegrayscalepodcast at gmail.com. And as always, a big thank you to our patients who continue to enrich our lives through shared experiences. See you in the fall!